My name is Eli Cohn-Postel. I am the Director of Israel Engagement at the Jewish Community Relations Council. Um, and we, just to tell you a little bit about our relationship with this event, so we do trips to Israel, um, study tours to Israel primarily for non-Jews. Um, so for non-Jewish clergy, um, for elected officials, for other community leaders. And we love to bring our groups to visit with Mohammed at Givat Chaviva. Um, he is consistently one of the top-rated speakers that we go and visit. Um, and beyond just being top-rated for being an effective speaker and communicator, um, I think that his work is some of the most inspiring to our participants who we bring back with us um, and continues to drive their thinking about Israel and issues in Israeli society um, and their involvement in, in Israel and with the Jewish community and with those sorts of issues throughout their um, throughout their work back in the States. So it's really a pleasure for us to welcome him. Um, I am responsible for some of our programming follow-up with our alumni. Um, so if there are folks who have gone on our study tours before who I have not had the opportunity to meet, please introduce yourself to me at some point so we can talk about bringing um, others of your favorites back to Boston to continue your experience and your learning um, focused on issues of Israelis and Palestinians um, and building bridges between Israeli and Palestinian society. Um, and with that, I'm going to introduce Mohammed, um, our guest for today. So Mohammed Darasha is the director of the Center for Equality and Shared Society at Givat Chaviva Institute in Israel. He is also a faculty member at the Shalom Hartman Institute and serves as an expert on national minorities at the European Council in Strasbourg. In 2016, he was a Richard von Weizsäcker Fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin, researching national minorities in Europe. Between 2005 to 2013, he served as co-director of the Abraham Fund initiatives and previously as elections campaign manager for the Democratic Arab Party and later the United Arab List in Israel. He holds a BA from Hebrew University in Jerusalem and an MA in Peace and Conflict Studies from Haifa University. He is considered a leading expert on Jewish-Arab relations, has presented lectures and papers at the European Parliament, NATO Defense College, the World Economic Forum, Club de Madrid, U.S. Congress, Herzliya Conference, and Israel's Presidential Conference. He won the Peacemakers Award from the Catholic Theological Union and the Peace and Security Award of the World Association of NGOs, and was the Leadership Fellow of the New Israel Fund. In 2008, he was elected as a council member in his hometown, Iksal. In 2009, he served as a member of the National Committee, which drafted the Coexistence Education Policy. He frequently appears on Arab satellite TV news programs analyzing current Israeli political and social trends, and he has served as a member of strategic planning team of the Authority for Economic Development of the Arab Sector, the Executive Board of the One Voice Movement, and the Executive Board of, the civil, of civil Leadership. He is married with four children and lives in his hometown of Iqsal, and we are honored to welcome Muhammad Darwasha to Harvard Divinity School. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm keeping my coffee so because I want to finish the mug because I plan to take it. <laughs> and if it's full, I won't be able to take it. So first I would like to uh, thank the Harvard Divinity School for hosting me and to thank the JCRC for facilitating that. So Jeremy, uh, Eli, and Namath, really great pleasure to be with you again and with your colleagues and friends that uh, you bring to Israel and that you are bringing here to, the, uh, to this uh, session as well. Uh, we have time, so I'm going to, uh, which is not usually the case when you come to Israel. You're usually rushing, and I have to uh, pack my presentation in, 
light messaging type of format. So today I'm going to take it easy. We have until two o'clock. I know one or two people that have already warned me that they're going to be leaving, which is fine. I will not be offended. Uh, but uh, uh, this topic uh, uh, deserves to be really dealt with in, uh, in depth. And uh, I'm going to talk for probably about 40, 45 minutes and then open it for discussion. So I'm also talking about things that you want to hear and not only things that I want to say. Uh, I was asked if I have a PowerPoint. Uh, my answer was, I try to be the power that makes the point. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't need that uh, technical support. Uh, so I hope, uh, uh, you know, again, keep, eat. I'm happy with you uh, eating. This is uh, actually a comfortable setting for me. When you're comfortable, I'm more comfortable. Uh, what's our topic? Our topic is uh, uh, challenges and uh, opportunities uh, for building a shared society. What's this term, shared society? It's a new term that has been introduced. I'm happy and honored to say that I'm one of the first people that created this terminology, uh, at least in the Israeli scene, back in 2005. What was the term that was operating before? There were two terms. One was called coexistence, and the second was called dialogue. Between whom? I'm backtracking a little bit with you. It was between the Jewish and the Arab citizens of Israel. In 1948, Israel was created, and uh, my grandfather's generation found themselves behind the enemy line. They found themselves citizens of the state that they were trying to prevent its creation. It was, it's not a population that immigrated to Israel. Actually, Israel immigrated to us. Uh, we're in the indigenous population of the land of Palestine, which became the state of Israel. And uh, we became citizens of the country that said to us, I'm not your state. From day one, Israel said to us, I'm the state of the Jewish people. And you happen to be here. Uh, we'd probably prefer if you are not. And if you find your way eastwards towards Jordan, it'll probably be better. And until about 1966, this was the official policy of the state, to convince us, to make us comprehend that this is the state of the Jewish people, not the state of its citizens. Yes, a democracy, but for the Jewish citizens. And for the non-Jewish citizens, we were under military rule until 1966 which was not a very comfortable relationship to have. Basically, that was, I would say, the mother of all sins in Israel's history, in its relationship to the Arab citizens, was that two-layer society that lasted for about 18 years. Now, if you read, and I've been, I made it my, my life work, to read the materials that relate to the status of the Palestinians who remained in Israel, if you read the government decisions in 1948, that was 5th of October 1948, to install this military administration in all Arab citizens in Israel, by the way, negating the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of Independence, which was announced on the 15th of May, said that Israel is Jewish and democratic as two equal values. But it also said it invited the Arabs of the land, that was the term that was used, basically my grandfather's generation, to stay and be part of building of the country. 
with three promises, social, economic, and political equality. Social, economic, but also political equality. That was the promise of the founding fathers of the state. Often I get the question, how do you compare Israel to what was what, the, the South Africa in the past? And I say, huge difference. In South Africa, you had to eliminate the system and create a completely new system to make it a just society. In Israel, all what you need to do is to implement the promise of the Founding Fathers. That's the promise. That's the promise according to which my grandfather decided to stay home because they gave him that window of opportunity in the Declaration of Independence. And for him, this was a better option, a better alternative than becoming a refugee in one of the neighboring Arab countries. And for that, I really thank my grandfather. I think he was smart enough to understand that staying home is better than becoming a refugee. But as I said, on the 5th of October that same year, the state rethought what it did in May and decided to change the status of Arab citizens from permanent citizens according to that Declaration of Independence and started seeing us as leftovers of the enemy. Not indigenous population, but leftovers of the enemy. People that are the potentially fifth column that might act against the security interests of the State of Israel. So they imposed this military administration, which was supposed to last for three months only. And the justification was to pacify the population, to collect whatever arms there are, to make this population realize there's a new regime, new power in the area, and restart after three months civic relationship. It didn't work. It lasted for 18 years, which created a culture of two-layer society. It created the culture of discrimination. It created a system that started operating as discriminatory system, and much of the discrimination is attributed to that period, and much of it is still dragging from that period. Two things, two main problems were instituted in, during that period because, as I said, it was seen through security lens and not through civilian lens. One is sustaining the separate residential structure. So Arab citizens, 92% lived in separate Arab towns. They continued in those 18 years to live in separate Arab towns and continue till today living in those separate towns. Crossing to live in the bigger cities or cities that were being built were being built for the Jewish new migrants. Only in seven cities that were called mixed cities, uh, Haifa, Jerusalem, uh, Tel Aviv, Yafo, Lod, Ramle, Beersheba, uh, and Ramle. These are the seven towns that were formerly called mixed cities, but all the other cities were called either Arab or Jewish. Maintaining the separation, the demographic separation, which also became the foundation for maintaining the millet educational system, which is a Turkish educational system that gave every religious sect the power to create their own separate educational system, which continues till today. So the educational system also is even more segregated than the residential system. 99.9% .9 
of Arab kids go to separate Arab schools. 99.9% .9 of Jewish kids go to separate Jewish schools. So we inherited geographic separation, we inherited educational separation, and all of that is operating beneath a, a regional conflict, national nature, often is getting even religious nature, identity-based conflict, that transcends animosity into the communities, and the result is very natural. There are two bodies that in, uh, research what we call racism in Israel, and you get the result of almost 68% of Israeli Jewish kids having racist views against Arab students, against Arab citizens, and about 57% of Arabs having racist views against Jews, with a margin of error of about 4%, it's, a, it's as bad. We get sick with a disease of racism. And the foundation for it is the separation, geographic, educational, and the conflict that, is, that, that hits us every single hour. You hear the news of violence, you hear the news of pol political polarization, of identity-based politics, so it's natural to become racist. I do not blame the kids that develop racist views. When you ask them, do you want to have an Arab family in the same apartment building, ask Jewish kids, do you want to have an Arab family living in the same apartment building you live in? And 68% say no. So in research, we label them as racists. But actually, you dig in deeper and you ask why, and they mostly respond with fear. They're afraid of the security nature of the Arab or the political nature of the Arab. They don't want to have stomach ache going through narrative debate every single day. And they do not want to look behind their shoulder of who are, who's coming to visit that Arab family. And the same thing on the opposite side. Do you want to have Jewish families coming to live in Arab neighborhoods? The massive majority of the Arabs say no, because they either represent the power, they represent the authority, they will turn you into the police for sneezing, and why should we have someone that could constitute a problem, a security, personal safety issue living in our own community? And that develops that negative attitudes uh, towards each other. In 1966, Israel decided that this population, those Arab citizens, those leftovers of the Palestinian people, they're here to stay. They're not going to disappear. Thinking that their status was temporary and ultimately will be able to get rid of them give them to Arab countries in, state, in exchange of Jews that will come to live in Israel. That was the dominant idea. That's why the military administration was every time extended three months at a time. Because they, we were seen as temporary citizens, not permanent citizens. Temporary up to three months periods and not even extended temporary status. Uh, not, here you have permanent status for or green card holders. Uh, so you're not a citizen, but you're a permanent resident. We, our residency there, we had citizenship, was, which was temporary citizenship. Because, as I said, the war was not seen as over, and the thinking was that this problem will find a cross-border solution 
and not an internal solution. The concept of integration was not the effort where the state put its energy. Its energy was trying to keep this population in some kind of a hold status in the regional context, which, by the way, some of the current politicians are trying to bring us back to that, that situation. But in 1966, something happened, as I said. Israel realized this problem is not going to disappear. My grandfather's and my, my father's generation by then started, uh, uh, Israel started realizing are not going to move. They are either too stupid to understand that this is not their country or too smart to understand that leaving is not good. That this reality is going to happen, that Israel as a, as a Jewish state is never going to be a pure ethnic Jewish state. The concept of a pure ethnic Jewish state without Palestinians, without Arabs, without Muslims, without Christians, that concept is not going to be real. And started asking itself the question, what do we do? What developed was, let's adopt this population. This Palestinian population is anyhow a small minority, 17, 16-17% at the time. Let's hug this population, bring them in Israel, try an Israelization process, which could be very helpful in the future of Israel if it wants to engage in peace agreements with the rest of the Arab countries. The term that was used, this population could potentially be the bridge for peace between Israel and the rest of the Arab world. If you ask me, I don't want to be a bridge, because the bridge is something you step on. I want to be the link. But that's terminology, that's, you know, that's less important in the bigger picture. But what's important, even if I want to accept to be a bridge for peace, a bridge usually has two strong legs in both sides. And what Israel was trying to say, Israelize yourself, detach yourself from your Arab-Palestinian identity. How do you want me to be a bridge afterwards? If I sell my soul to who's considered the enemy of the Palestinians, the enemy of the Arab world, how am I supposed to become a bridge afterwards? And the debate in our community was, how do we, yes, go through the Israelization process, but maintain our own identity and capacity to engage with the rest of the Arab world, which was not easy. Because the Arab world saw us as traitors for accepting Israeli citizenship. For them, we accepted the citizenship of the enemy. We stopped fighting Israel. We did not join the PLO in 1960s. We did not commit terrorist acts. We did not blow up uh, bus stations and buses through in, th all over Israel. Uh, we accepted reality. We became realistic in our daily behavior, which was not what the Arab world wanted. They wanted us to act as a fifth column and to keep streets burning, uh, regardless of what impact it will have on our own community. We were seen as an extension of the military operation and the Palestinian struggle for statehood inside the state of Israel. A, position, a job that we didn't do, and as such, we were considered traitors in the eyes of the rest of the Arab world. It was a very tough period because from one end, as I, as I said earlier, during that period, we were pretty much stateless. The state of Israel said, you're not my national interest. 
And from the other end, the Arab world said, you're traitors. So we were, I call that period of being politically orphans. No state, no nation. The Arab national, national, national movements, the Arab world, even the Arab League in 1956, issued a statement calling on us to leave Israel. And whoever does not leave is a traitor. So we were traitors in the eyes of the Arab world, and we were leftovers of the enemy in the eyes of the Israelis. A tough situation to survive through, but we did. We did, mainly by ducking down, by not taking any action. So it was not that, that much of a strategy, uh, but it was wait-and-see type of strategy, uh, hoping that thing, tomorrow will be a better day. Uh, until that moment, when the Israelization process was offered, when the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, lifted the military administration, and it was an invitation for us to become, to go through the Israelization process. So if an orphan gets an offer to get adopted, what does he do? He jumps at it. And that's what happened. We jumped at the opportunity and we started the Israelization process. Comes the 1967 war between Israel and the Arab world. Israel defeats all of the Arab armies and we feel that we gambled on the winning horse. So now we think strategy. Oh, we, th we knew that this is going to happen, uh, and it was a smart decision not to become refugees because so many of the Palestinian refugees became second-time refugees. So in retrospect, the decision was a smart political decision without even making it as a political decision. I mean, my grandfather was not a political strategist when he surrendered, and he was the one that surrendered the seven rifles that we had in, the, in our town, when he did that, he was not a political strategist. He was of survival nature. He wanted to survive. He thought staying home and being able to harvest his fields the following week, that means that he has food for his family. That was his thinking, very basic human nature. But the Israelization process came also with gifts. The adopting parent, if you want to adopt a child, you try to give them a few gifts to make them like you. And the gifts were modernization. So Israelization for us meant modernization. Access roads to the Arab towns and villages, water systems, electricity, uh, schools, all kinds of things that brought modernization to our community. It was something to celebrate for us. Uh, parallel to that, we also got exposed to the reality of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, which was very difficult. They were not receiving those gifts. They were under military occupation still. But when we started comparing ourselves to their status, being Israeli meant something significant. So we wanted, it even enhanced our Israelization process. That lasted until 1976. 1976, we stopped comparing ourselves to the status of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and we started comparing our status to that of other Israelis. You know, with food comes appetite. You start eating, and you're eating an apple, you think it's sweet, you continue. We started eating the bites of the Israelization, enjoying it, and we wanted the full Israeli package. We started reading about democracy, about 
the legal system of the State of Israel. After 1966, we were allowed to start going to universities. We had lawyers graduating. We had political scientists graduating. And we started wanting to behave and treated as Israelis, as the way Israeli Jews are treated and not the way Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are treated. We changed our point of comparison from the status of people under occupation or from where we were until 1966 and started the comparison with the Israeli Jews. We said Israelization all the way. There's no halfway democracy. There's no halfway Israelization. There's no halfway civil, civic relationship. Equality became the topic. Parallel to equality, the term coexistence started developing. In 1966, as part of the celebration, we started using the term coexistence. But quickly, the new term that started coming in was equality. Most of the Jews in Israel would say to you, equality will come if we know how to coexist. If we have good relations, the outcome of coexistence will be equality. If you ask the same question to the Arab citizens, they'll say the exact opposite dynamics is needed. First of all, equality. Let's be in the same base of legal, social, economic status. And the outcome of equality will be good relations, will become coexistence. It's like two ends of a spectrum, equality and coexistence. One says this leads to that, the other says this leads to that. So now we, are, we have two different contradicting tracks. Demand of equality from the Arab community saying, let's put coexistence in a parking mood. It's not about eating hummus together and enjoying a wonderful meal and singing peace songs and having nice t-shirts that, that tell you the story of peace. If we know this is going to bring us equality tomorrow, then we'll engage in it. Otherwise, let's put it aside. And we went through a debate between 1976 until the year 2000 of what comes first, equality or a, a coexistence. You know, I, I've just finished my second degree in, in conflict resolution and they were teaching us in peace education about uh, how do you do peace, you know, what are the theories for peace education. And I'm sure that some of you that even studied social sciences, you hear about the social contact theory. Did anyone ever hear it, hear about it? No. So the social contact theory basically says, bring people together, break down stereotypes, humanize each other, reduce animosity, uh, and this creates a good foundation for continued interaction afterwards. The problem that I wrote about this couple of articles, the problem with, with this in our context is that uh, coexistence was in an environment of, uh, I want to use the analogy, in the environment of a horse and a rider reality. So you can create fant fantastic synergy and fan fantastic atmosphere and fantastic coexistence between a horse and a rider. It could be beautiful. And when a horse and a rider are out in the fields, you don't know who's controlling whom. They're both enjoying the ride. But at the end of the ride, one goes to the barn and eats hay, and one goes to the castle and eats a steak. The hierarchy is maintained. The equality can be seen or felt or enjoyed temporarily, 
But at the end of the ride, you, the hierarchy is maintained. So if that's coexistence, I don't want it. I don't want to go to the barn. Or if I'm going to the barn, the rider should come with me and eat, and eat hay. Or we're both horses pulling the same wagon, or we're both riders that enjoy the same steak afterwards. So the concept of equality is a need if you are on the receiving end of discrimination. Becomes more critical, becomes conditional even for continued relationship. And that actually caused a great deal of problems in what we call the industry of Jewish-Arab relations. Organizations working for coexistence started losing ground, theoretic, but also practical ground. People simply didn't want to be part of this joyful experience of coexistence. And I was asking myself, what am I doing here? In a wonderful discussion, as I said, eating hummus, and sometimes we use the second theory, which is called the narrative debate theory, or we call it sometimes dialogue, where you're not just about eating hummus, you even allow the elephant to come into the room, and you talk about the problems, you talk about the narratives, you talked about who caused what, you start by today's event, who stabbed whom in the street, who shot whom last week, who closed this town, who did this, who caused the war in 1967, who caused, is it Nakba or independence in 1948, and uh, some of you heard me saying we usually date back, we start backtracking until we get to the point of question, who did Abraham want to sacrifice? Was it Ishmael or Isaac? And we still disagree on that. And I'm willing to debate it. I can prove it. I can prove it that it was Ishmael who was there under the knife. And Jeremy can come here and probably pull a few textbooks from that the, the, the Torah and the other textbooks that can prove that it was Isaac. So what, what's the point here? Is that if you engage in a narrative debate, the maximum you can agree on is agree to disagree. There are things that we disagree on and we'll continue to disagree on. Narrative debate and dialogue is good because as I said, it's honest, it allows you to understand the issues, understand the identity, the background of the other, but it's dangerous business. You know, we, do, we have about 6,000 Jewish and Arab kids that come to our campus every year, and we engage them into these three theories of, of uh, social uh, change, the contact theory, the social contact theory, the narrative debate theory, and then I'll mention the third soon. Uh, but this is very dangerous business, and if you are not trained in it, I do not recommend you do it. We've seen in some evaluations uh, kids responding, I used to hate Arabs, now I know why. I used to hate Jews, now I know why. That's what narrative debate allows you to do. So if you, it's easy to unpack the problem. It's very difficult to repack it. It's very difficult to repack it. Repacking it can happen only if you know to fo how to focus on the third theory of social change, which is called the superordinate goal theory. In simple English, Mutual interests. You know, beyond being nice to each other, the social contact, beyond being honest debating, we need to focus on mutual interests. Can we develop mutual interests? And now the interests, let me go back to the two ends of the spectrum, coexistence and equality. So the interests of the Jews 
is good relations. They want a community that is willing to engage in good relations, less of security threat, willing to accept the Jews as legitimate in the region, accept their relationship to their land, uh, and so on. The, the interest of the Arab citizens is equality. Now, how do you make these interests meet? Only if you're able to identify mutual interests. So I'll give you a few examples. I'm conscious of time, so I, can, I want to leave some time for discussion, not just a lecture. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. In, 2000 and, uh, in the year two, 1999, I tried together with a few friends to challenge the segregated educational system. I looked at the American experience of busing in the 1960s and thought, wow, this is a fantastic idea. This is the way to break the segregation. This is the way to create a new generation that studies together, that gets, uh, uh, realizes that an African-American and a white American can be normal human beings to each other. They develop friendships, and those friendships will transcend afterwards to other places in, in leadership in society. And we, start, we put together an organization called Hand in Hand, uh, which succeeded in creating a joint Jewish and Arab school. Another organization did it at the time called Neve Shalom, also created the School of Peace. And slowly we started building more and more of those schools. We even made it up to seven schools today. We can pat ourselves on the shoulder, but it's seven out of 6,000. The remaining 5,993 are still separate schools. So usually when I talk to donors, and I don't identify any donor here, I would, otherwise I would have talked differently, <laughs> uh, I would celebrate that success. We did manage to create seven fantastic schools against all odds, without government support. But if you're thinking project-wise, you keep patting yourself on the shoulder. If you think in strategic terms, you ask, what about the remaining 5,993? What do we do with them? They still produce 68% racism and 57% racism. What do you do with them? So in 2005, I thought, you know, I presented the project to the Ministry of Education. I said, I understand your reservation from funding joint educational systems. What if we do not bus children? What if we bus teachers? Jewish teachers in Arab schools, Arab teachers in Jewish schools. They said, it's not going to work. You're not going to find schools willing to accept the other. It's going to be another boutique project with another six or seven schools like that. Uh, we started with actually with six schools in 2005. Today there are 570 schools like this in Israel. I'm sorry, 630 as of September 1st. 630 schools in Israel, that's already more than 10% of the educational system in Israel that has this exchange of teachers. Now that's not the important number. I mean, the goal is to have the 6,000, to cover the 6,000. And not with one teacher in the school, but with two teachers in every school. But the results that of measurement that we conducted last year showed tremendous impact. We measured <clears throat> the, 
the 74 Arab schools that have Jewish teachers right now. We did a eva deep evaluation, and we found that for 68%, 69% even, uh, of those children, that was their first meaningful encounter with a Jew. What's a meaningful encounter? Were you able to have a relationship with a person? Non-meaningful, you meet a bus driver who's Jewish, or you, you, you have an interaction in a cafe with someone that you pay him or something. That's not meaningful encounter. That does not do anything significant. If someone is a cashier, that's not the idea. Meaningful encounter where you develop some kind of a discussion, you engage, you develop a long-term relationship with that person. 69%, that was their first and only also meaningful encounter. But the more important result was for 92.2% of them, this encounter transferred their perspectives about the Jews to the positive, or to more positive perspective, not to the positive, but to more positive than what they had in the past. The rate of racism among Arab kids that went into those programs dropped from an average of 57% to an average of 8%. Among Jewish kids that have an Arab teacher, the rate of racism dropped, and usually this drop happens two years later, after two years, that's a measurement. The rate of racism drops from 68% to somewhere around 10%. Which leads us to believe one thing. Racism is not a gene that you're, that you're born with. It's a skill that you develop. It's a, it's a skill that you learn, but it's a skill we can help you unlearn. There are pills against racism. And the pill in this case was two years of a teacher from the other side being with you once a week, forcing you to look at the others, other, not just as a security case, not just as a political case, but as a personal human case. You like their haircut or you don't like their haircut. You like the colors of their clothing or you don't like it. You like the kind of shoes they choose. They are absent in, in strange holidays that you've never heard about. Suddenly you want to know about those holidays. They, have, they tell you about the story they were absent because they had a brother who got married. Oh, so you think about them as people with families. You ask about, they, are happy, they come back with a cookie or something sweet because their sister had the baby. And you ask about the name of the baby. So suddenly that Jewish teacher has a name and their they have uh, nephews and you ask about their names. Suddenly that Arab teacher has a holiday and you know that that holiday is associated with a certain cookie with, uh, with a certain uh, spice that goes with the dates. You humanize the other. And that's why we st stopped talking about coexistence and started talking about shared society as the component is the human aspect. How do we humanize relations and not just keep it on shared interests? Another thing, another project that we uh, became a very important, successful foundation for our work. In 2003, there was a commission that investigated October 2000 uh, clashes that left 13 Arab citizens killed. A commission that uh, gave us, I would say, became the Bible for the, this industry of coexistence organizations. But what we got out of it 
was uh, the pragmatic approach. Let's stop being idealists and start being practical about how do we approach these problems. Israeli universities had, you know, the percentage of Arab citizens is 21% of the population. But we only had 3.5% of the student population. Why? Because universities were creating obstacles against Arab students from entering universities. The idea was inherit the inherited syndrome of treating the Arab citizens as enemies, leftovers of the enemy, that syndrome of these are temporary citizens. Why should we even allow them to, to our schools? You know, I went to Hebrew University. I was a rare seen in my age when, during in the uh, 80s. We were very few. We were looking to, you know, trying to hear word in Arabic and run after it uh, to, to try to make sure that we have some kind of friends or colleagues in the school. We were being treated as strangers. We were seen as strangers at the university. And uh, we started discussing with the universities, what's your, what's your job, what's your mission? Are you here to train, are you here to sustain uh, the Jewish dominance? Or are you here to train the next labor market or the, 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 the manpower for the next labor market? So in certain areas, there was no one to talk to. In certain subjects or certain faculties, there was no one to talk to because they did see themselves as part of the sustaining of the dominance of the Jewish population and the profit and the benefit of the Jewish population. But we started identifying some cracks. The first crack, by the way, was in the health industry. Many Israeli doctors were immigrating to Israel, to the U.S., uh, most of the, the Israeli population, Israeli Jewish population, is relatively an older population because it's, it's not, you know, the growth, the population demographics, it's an older population than an average population anywhere else in the world because many people that immigrated to Israel, they immigrated older, uh, as the older people and not as, as young people, not many children. And the population was aging and accumulating also needs for health. Now, Israeli medical industry needed doctors, needed nurses. And uh, the Arab citizens were not allowed to go into uh, the military. So if you're a smart person, you thought you wanted to have military career, cross that. Not allowed to go in civil service. So if you wanted to become a high, in high level in civil service, put an X on that. Uh, finance also closed, high-tech was not even present then. So if you're smart, you go to try to get accepted to medical school. The result is that, the result was that the Israeli academia and universities started putting pressure to open and lift those limitations. Uh, now, 18, uh, no, 15 years later, the percentage of Arab doctors in Israeli hospitals is 23%. We're higher than our rate in, our, in the population. <clears throat> We're also 28% of the nurses. We are 35% of the dentists. We are 46% of the pharmacists. Go back to the needs 
superordinate goal theory. The Jewish population had a need. We built the capacity in the Arab community. Perfect match. Now, this is, we're talking about a massive population. Now, this population is beginning to create uh, what we begin, what we start identifying as a middle class and as an Arab middle class that is making money. And where do they spend that money? They usually spend it in the Jewish community. So they start going to restaurants. They start going to movie theaters. They begin to change the public scene in Israeli Jewish towns, in the Israeli shopping malls. It is changing the, the scene in the, in the traditional Israel. The concept of shared society is becoming different concept than in the past. You know, in the past, you would say, you would never see an Arab family sitting in a restaurant in a Jewish town. If, you would, if there would be an Arab, he would be the waiter. Today, it will be the doctor that works in the nearby hospital. And that challenges the perspective of the Jewish population about that, Arab fam that family they're willing to tolerate speaking Arabic. For them, that Arabic is not the language of the enemy. It's the language of their doctor. It's the language of their pharmacist. That makes a mindset shift in the way people relate to each other. This is a success story, and the question is that we are facing is how do we copy it in other arenas? How do we bring it to high-tech? High-tech is 40% of the GDP in Israel. It's 40% of the economy. The percentage of Arab citizens in high-tech is only 3% of the employees. How do you do that? It's, it's happening. 23% of the students of high-tech in Israeli universities today are Arab students. Now, it's not enough to develop an appetite within the Arab community to want to study high-tech. It's not enough to have the high-tech industry saying, we're willing to accept Arab students. The question that we had to face with the universities, how can universities become more receptive to Arab students? By the way, I said we were 3.5% of the student population. Today, we are 17.5% of the student population. A total revolution that happened in 14 years, from 3.5% to 17.5%. Universities are creating the space, and the Arab community is really jumping on the opportunity. And not and for subjects that are relevant to the job market, because really we want to train people that can click properly with the rest of the Israeli economy. Because if you train people for subjects that are not relevant to the market, they'll, become, they'll end up being jobless, frustrated, smart people. The worst combination. Uh, you need to find a way that you really link them to places that they can have proper job and proper income that results from that. So there is a lot of effort right now to try to work with people that uh, challenge the, the, the industry from the bottom up, meaning training people with the capacity to become the best of students and the best graduates, but also working with the, with the mechanism with the university so that it's more hospitable for Arab students. And some of the issues that I've been dealing with uh, with universities is how a university that has 17% Arab students should behave to its Arab students. Couple of issues. 
studying in a separate Arab educational system means that we come with very weak Hebrew. You know, it's good enough to ask where the toilets are, uh, but it's not good enough to read an academic uh, paper or to write an academic paper. So do you need to give them extra Hebrew in the first semester? My answer is yes. Who funds it? Who funds that extra course for Arab students? Is it this, the Arab kid, which comes with, from a very difficult background, 57% of Arab citizens are below the poverty line. So if you load on them extra courses, that means that they have to pay more money for it, you're dooming them for failure. You might cause them to leave university because you're putting too much financial pressure on them. So you have to find the money to fund the, the, those courses, uh, those extra courses for the Arab students. Then there's a question of what do you do if there is a, a, an exam uh, that falls on a Muslim holiday? Until about five years ago, the university said, it's your problem. It's your problem. And, you know, in, in the only, in, we Muslims are very, uh, you know, we're lousy in holidays. We only have two holidays. That's uh, Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr. These are the only two holidays that officially you, sh you, have, you shouldn't work in uh, and you shouldn't study in them. And uh, all the other holidays, you just, you, you know, they're sort of memorial days or things like that. Uh, you know, the Jews did the best Shabbat, 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 you know, you have off, 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 off. <laughs> you know, in, we don't even have a, we, a day off in Islam, the religious, from religious point of view, you only have the hour of the, of the prayer, uh, not the full day of Friday, only the hour of prayer of Friday that you have to close shop and, and not work. Uh, but we had to deal with the universities in being able to, to defer exams uh, or give an, another date for students that have holidays in those specific two Muslim holidays. What do you do if you have an exam during the month of Ramadan and you're fasting after three o'clock in the afternoon? You didn't drink, you didn't eat, your sugar level is very at the lowest, your thinking capacity is only about food and drink, and now you have to take an exam in physics or in math or in computer science or in God knows what. My, you know, my daughter just graduated in biomedical sciences at Hebrew University. And every course, the name of every course was this long. <laughs> and just to remember which course you're taking exam in would be difficult uh, if you're fasting. And the question is, what's the job of the university? Is it to help that student pass the exam successfully or to punish him for his social religious identity or ethnic identity? And we went through real deep dialogue until they started, we, we came to the agreement and the, that you want these students to succeed. They're, that's if you, highly qualified people are good for the labor market afterwards. Highly qualified people are good for the name of the university. All the way up that the Technion today, which in 2000 and 2003, when the old commission report came out, the percentage of Arab student population, Technion is our version of MIT. The percentage of Arab students then was one and a half percent. Today, we are 25% of the student population at the Technion. They're trying to raise money now to build a mosque 
inside the campus of the Technion. Now, put this in the, you know, put this where we were 13, 14 years ago, to the fact that the Technions today says 25% of my student population is Arab, mostly Muslim, about two-thirds Muslim, one-third Christian, and we want to accommodate them, we want them to feel comfortable, we want to care for their identity needs so that they can perform better academically afterwards. Now that's, the, sh the mind shift is not coexistence, the mind shift is, shift is shared interests because you want people to graduate from here because they will bring you the branding of the university afterwards. They want to attract the best of students to that campus and prevent them from running to other campuses such as going to study in Jordan or going to study in the West Bank, which creates two problems. So if you're an Arab citizen and that goes to study in the West Bank or Jordan, you come back with two problems. One is irrelevance to the job market in Israel. You study topics in Arabic only, and so your Hebrew level, your Hebrew quality level is very bad, which creates either irrelevancy or delay in entering the job market. And delay in entering the job market, that's a waste of income to the person himself and a waste of taxes that will be paid to the state. So there's a mutual interest in fast moving into employment. The second problem that happens is radicalization, whether national or religious radicalization. They do not go through the Israelization experience that an Israeli university provides you. So now everyone is beginning to realize it's our interest to bring them to Israeli universities and not to let them escape. Because if you keep obstacles in Israeli universities, they do find solutions. An Arab student who's 18 wants to get a university degree. If you prevent him from getting it in Israel, they'll get it in the West Bank, they'll get it in, in, uh, in Jordan. The globalization has meant that borders are easy to cross. But they come back with being a, an economic burden for about two to three years until they find a job, and they are welfare recipients instead of taxpayers. And they go also through this radicalization process. The, uh, I want to finish with the two specific points. So I talked about the social issue, I talked about the economic issue, I want to talk about the political aspect. I said that the, the uh, <clears throat> Declaration of Independence promised three things, social, economic, and political equality. Economically, I think we're doing very well in the last 13 years or 14 years since the Orr Commission report gave us that guidance that basically said, guys, you're here in it for life. It's, you're, we're sentenced to live together forever. Start figuring it out. And the economic arena was the easiest place to identify mutual interests in it. The social is, you know, not much is done by the government. A lot is done by us and people in civil society. We're trying to create these alternative models and alternative projects. Often being able, yes, to drag government into some of those projects. This teacher exchange program, uh, all of the salaries are paid by the government, the salaries of the teachers. That makes, it, makes the government share about 90% of the cost. Uh, so when we raise donations, it's mostly for teacher training and curriculum development and evaluation, but the big chunk of the cost, which is 90% of the cost, that's the 630 salaries, 
that are paid by the Ministry of Education. So we're also beginning to get smarter in how do we engage with the government in trying to get them involved into the, right, into the funding of the projects. The, uh, the, la the last thing I want to mention or to talk about is the political aspect. The political aspect is stuck in the narrative debate theory. You hear most Israeli Jewish politicians representing the right-wing ruling parties. The rhetoric is anti-democratic, anti-Arab, that basically sees Arab citizens as potentially economic partners, but not part of the decision-making structure in Israel. They want to maintain decision-making for Jews only and not for Israelis. And they, one of the best examples is the nationality bill that is being pushed right now in the Israeli Knesset that is trying to you know, change that balance between Jewish and democratic, which was established in the Declaration of Independence by institutionally putting the Jewish nature above the democratic nature of the state. And it's a bill that has been discussed right now, very dangerous bill in our view, uh, but it's part of what I call the vertical approach uh, in, in discussing the status of the Arab citizens. With the absence of a constitution, this kind of effort becomes very, very dangerous. It actually negates uh, uh, much of the work that we're trying to create for, for shared society. Uh, and and that, that you hear also Arab politicians debating it also from the same place, coming to say, no, we should have we should eliminate the Jewish nature of the state and talk about the state of all of its citizens. While the Jews say, no, it's a state of the Jewish people, meaning it's a state of the 79% who are the citizens of the country and the state of the Jews who live outside the country. The Arab citizens are saying, no, 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 no. It's a state of the Arab and Jewish citizens of Israel. Not does not belong to the Jews outside the state of Israel. Who are the shareholders? Do we have two shareholders who are the Jews in Israel and the Jews outside Israel? Or do we have two shareholders who are the Arab and Jewish citizens of Israel? Or do we have three? The Jews in Israel and outside Israel and the Arab citizens. That's a debate right now that's going through, which is mostly, as I said, in the narrative debate layer, which gets us nowhere. It's actually poisoning the atmosphere. It contributes to increase of racism, to polarization between the communities. Uh, and that's why in elections time, I take time off to try to get people to vote in the right direction, in the in correct direction, not right direction, uh, which is not right. <laughs> uh, but I don't spend much time there because uh, there it's very difficult to gain successes. Uh, mainly, as I said earlier, my assumption is that we cannot progress much there without solving the regional context, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that two-state solution. Uh, without that being resolved, we're going to continue that debate about the nature and identity of the state, which is more of a regional discussion and less of an internal discussion. We're not able, politically, we're not able to bring the issues of the Arab citizens and limit them to civil rights issue inside the state. They continue to be a political cross-border issue. We're seen as an extension of the Palestinian Arab enemy in most cases 
at least in the political arena, and less of citizens that are trying to figure out their equal status. So when we talk about what's shared society, shared society, and I'll end with this, shared society means we need to develop good relations between the communities. We need to develop honest dialogue about the differences. We need to focus on mutual interests, and we need to add the component of equality. This, this is the concept of shared society. Uh, meanwhile, I would say, park the narrative debate for one or two generations until we accumulate enough successes on the social economic arenas that might make it possible for us to deal with the political issues in a much more mature way, where we have something to lose. It would be a very different kind of discussion uh, when two generations down the road, uh, uh, the, my grandchildren who will be, uh, will be doctors, will be high-tech engineers, will be people of, of significant hold in, in society, in the economic aspect and nature of society, they'll negotiate a different deal than the one that I'm able to negotiate today. Many would say on the constitutional vertical approach, we need to talk about the flag, which is exclusive flag of the state. We need to talk about the national anthem, which is an exclusive national anthem of the state. And I say, you know what? I care less. I would love to see a flag which is more inviting, which is more inclusive, but it's a weight I put in the shoulder of the Jewish majority in Israel. You figure out how do you want to make it inclusive? You want me to relate to it as a flag that I will shed a tear when I see it? Show me where am I in it. I'm not going to challenge it. I accept it as the flag that was presented by the majority population, agreed on by the majority population. But maybe there will be a time in that one or two generations down the road that the Jewish population, one, will feel safe and secure enough, mature and responsible enough also, to say, you know what, we'll add an olive tree size of one inch by one inch on the left corner that uh, will basically say to the non-Jews, I'm here for you. Maybe the national anthem will speak not only about the Jewish soul, it will mature to also speak about the Israeli soul. Maybe the state will mature to not be only the state of the Jewish people, but also the state of its citizens. Now they're talking about the debate is, is it the state of the Jewish people or is it the state of its citizens? And the question, will we mature to be both the state of the Jewish people and the state of its citizens? And that's a process, that's a political maturity process that without creating those islands of success, without that horizontal approach, not the vertical approach, the horizontal approach, creating islands of success that are big enough. I always like to finish by bringing a story of my daughter who just graduated, I mentioned graduated in biomedical sciences at Hebrew University. She, was, uh, she, she had her last exam on the 13th of uh, August in one of those long courses, long name courses. Her professor comes to her towards the end of the exam and asks her if she can come to see him uh, after the exam. She gets nervous, she calls me. Uh, I tell her, you know, just go see what he wants. And he said to her, what are you doing after uh, the exam? She said, going home. 
doing what? And she tells him, you know, I don't know what to do next. I finished all of my duties for my undergraduate degree. I want to work a little bit and see whether I want to go to medical school or, or if I want to continue in medical research, more research-oriented or medical school. And he said, what are you going to work in? She says, I don't know. I'm going to start looking. He says, okay, I work for a company called Medinol. They specialize in the stents that they put in the cardiovascular systems. Come see me tomorrow in, the war, at, in my company. She goes the next day. That's the 14th of August. He takes her on a two-hour tour in the company and tells her, do you like it? She says, yes. He said, do you want a job here? She says, yes. What job? He says, we'll tailor a job for you. We will tailor a job that is specific for you. And she says, why? He said to her, I saw how you worked with your Jewish colleagues. And there are two students out of the 73 graduates that I want in my company, you and that one specific other Jewish colleague. She said, I, would, I don't want to commit for more than a year. He says, even six months, whatever you want. Just come. So she happened to become the first Arab employee in a company of 755 Jewish employees. She's the first. She's the youngest ever. Works in the R&D department. But what's this story telling? It tells two things. One, her capacity to be fit and here, I always say to people, when I know I speak in, in Arab middle, in Arab schools, almost every week I'm in a different Arab school, uh, the burden of success is bigger on our shoulders than it is on the majority Jewish population. By the way, it's the same burden of success on the Jews outside Israel. It's the mindset of a minority. You need to work harder. You need to bring better grades. You need to perform in higher performance capacity than the average Israeli citizen. Uh, and she did that. Uh, the second is your capacity to engage with the others, people not of your certain same identity. Uh, your human capacity to engage with them, your willingness to accept them, to go to work with them on projects, to work with her peer Jewish students on projects and contribute to the, their mutual success, that's the mutual interest theory, not thinking that, oh, they're Jewish, I'm Arab, but eliminate that identity when you're working on a joint mission. Focus on your target, focus on success, focus on your mutual interest. And the third, what happened there was the willingness of the representative of the majority, the Jewish population, to create space for her which was based on developing some trust over the last three years that he's met with her, he got to know her, that he was able to take her to home, to his company also, where he's also a shareholder. So it was a change that he went through to say it's time now that this $5 billion company opens its place to bring in the first Arab employee. The amazing part is that we know also now from research that the company that gets one Arab employee is more likely to get another Arab employee within the next 12 months. So once you get one person, one foot in the door, it, it keeps the door open. Oh, the crack, the first, creating the first crack is always the difficult thing. And, by, and 
we know this crack can be created only in personal interaction. Not policy from the government, not big capital P politics, but what I call in, in small pieces of peace. Small piece, one by one, child by child, that's how we can create the, the, the difference. It is not, it is islands, and those islands are not connected yet. At some point, the question is how do you connect those projects of education, employment, Arab women into the labor market, a creating civil society organizations, teacher exchange programs. At some point, we need to start connecting those dots where we can start talking about something similar to the civil rights movement that was able to challenge the political structure and force politicians to start paying attention and say, okay, now we visit that constitutional concept of the status of, of the Arab citizens where we make the concept of shared society not projects, we make it the identity of the state. Thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Mohammed. It's always a pleasure to hear from you and to share in your wisdom and teaching. Um, we have plenty of time for questions, so if folks have questions, you can just raise your hand and I'll come bring you the mic and we can, yeah. Hi, my question is- Can you tell me your name first? Leslie. But um, my question is, how have the students, when they go back to their homes in their neighborhoods, um, treated and reacted to by family and um, neighborhood? Okay. <clears throat> and there's the syndrome of going home. Uh, we bring 6,000 kids every year to our campus. Givat uh, Haviva Center for Shared Society, and they, they go through two, three days of detachment from their reality in this alien space, in a bubble, where they meet the other for the first time. Uh, they sleep in the same dorm dormitories. They eat from the same plates. Uh, and the, the methodology works. The social contact methodology works. You know, give me any combination of any people for two, three days. I can create some kind of harmony. Technically, it's easy to do. You just need to learn it, and you can do it. But your question is right, is extremely important. There were two studies that we commissioned. One uh, was done by Professor Gabby Solomon from Haifa University, and the other one uh, was uh, Professor Yifat Maoz from Hebrew University. At two separate times, we asked him to evaluate Jewish-Arab encounters that Givat Haviva is doing and other institutions are doing. They came back to us with few recommendations. One, they identified the going home syndrome. The going home syndrome says, oh, I was kidnapped by aliens, they brainwashed me, and now I need to go back to my home positions, to my mother's and father's positions, to my friend's positions. And the question is, do you train them to be social change agents, or do you make them feel that they actually absorbed an alien concept and thought? So when we start examining that, we now know that one-time programs do not work. They work, but they have short shelf time. Uh, the impact lasts anywhere between one to 12 months. 
After that, home takes over again. So you affect people. If it's a one-time meeting, you affect them, and it, the impact can last for one or, or 12 months. So that's so recommendation number one, constant, you, not one, but many uh, times you need to meet the person many, many times. The encounter, instead of bringing people for three days, spread those three days over the year. So it's one every semester. And if you have financial capacity, do 30 of those kind of meetings. And it affected the way we do programming. So we have a program called CTC, Children Teaching Children, uh, for which we won the UNESCO Prize for Peace Education. We're the only organization in the Middle East that got the UNESCO Prize for Peace Education because the quality of this program basically was started pairing Jewish and Arab classrooms together for one study day every two weeks. Kids come to for one day, the same kids, they come for one day of study, joint study. They study languages, Arabic and Hebrew, civics education through different perspectives, history through different perspectives and narratives, uh, and geography. Uh, four topics that they study together, one day every two weeks. And, the, and, and here we don't have a go home syndrome or return home syndrome because it's constant. It happens to them every, every year, every week, I'm sorry, every two weeks for a period of three weeks. By the way, we don't also have the problem of the returning home syndrome with the, with the teacher exchange because the teachers go to, your, to the kid's environment and the change that happens there happens in their own home environment, which all of it is changing. And not just that specific one group that came to our campus. So doing work back in the community itself is much more important than bringing people to our own campus. And in that program, we have today more than 180,000 kids into this program. A, another way we're, we're dealing with this is that, you know, we used to bring, we used to take almost any two schools that wanted to have an encounter. One, let's say, from an Arab town, my town, Iqsal, near Nazareth, with a school from Tel Aviv. Both are interested. We bring them together. We do the programming with them, whether it's once or three or five times, and then we send them home. The problem was that with that is that there's no continuity. So today we're only, we do programs only between adjacent towns, towns that have physical geographic uh, uh, proximity so that kids could potentially maintain some kind of relationship. They can invite each other for a, a brother's wedding or for a birthday, or they can meet at the McDonald's uh, uh, store. Uh, where you're able to maintain some level of, of continuity and not just the, this alien experience that is not completely not relevant. But this is a, an important uh, uh, consideration today in our programming. It affects our target audience, our pairing, uh, and the longevity and the sustainability of, of each of the program. If you come to me and ask me to invest our organizational money into a one-time meeting, I'm not willing to do that. You need to come with your own money for that. You know, I'm happy to do it, but it's not part of my strategic work. My strategic work has to have the proximity, has to have the longevity, in order to realize that it's effective afterwards. I'm Dan. Um, Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for the... Um, 
what you've shared. Uh, I love your pragmatism. Um, and I love the examples um, that you've given. This is the third time, and you use different examples each time, um, which is all the more inspiring. I wonder if you have any examples of islands of success that um, uh, are not um, oriented so much towards uh, Israeli Arab citizens, but uh, are there islands of success in your work um, that involve um, Arabs in the West Bank or Gaza? Um, and a follow-up to that is, um, <clears throat> how can North American organizations, um, is there a role for North American or organizations to play um, in building a shared society? Okay, uh, regarding islands of success for beyond the, the state of Israel, I'm announcing at the Harvard Divinity School that on September 1st, we're opening uh, the first uh, IB school, International Baccalaureate School on campus, which 50% of it will be Jewish and Arab students, and the remaining 50% will be internationals, mostly from the Middle East. Uh, so it's going to be an international high school, uh, IB, but with a focus on uh, conflict resolution. Students will, that will participate will in become actually be trained as leaders in conflict resolution. Uh, will, will even already at high school age, they will graduate uh, as facilitators of uh, conflict resolution or diverse groups. Uh, we received uh, the IB, International Baccalaureate, uh, approval for that. Uh, we received the Israeli Ministry of Education approval for that. Uh, now we're trying to, we're in the setup stage. We just received the, the, the papers about two weeks ago. And we're in the setup stage. We hope to be able to open in September 1st, at the, at the latest September 1st, the following year. Uh, but that's, it's, it's in line of thinking of, how do we export our knowledge? How do we export uh, beyond just the civil rights aspect of the Arab citizens? How do we go a little bit more regional and contribute to the wider uh, atmosphere? We've done in the past more work with Palestinians, Egyptians, and uh, uh, Jordanians. Uh, but since 2006, since uh, uh, the boycott movement started taking over after the uh, Hamas took over the Palestinian uh, Authority at the time and then uh, split between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, there was a lot of uh, rejection in the Palestinian side and the rest of the Arab world for any kind of Jewish, um, uh, Israeli, Arab uh, interaction. Uh, all of the what's called people-to-people -people type of programs uh, started receiving a lot of opposition in, in those countries, which made it almost impossible uh, to do this work. Uh, I tried in 2011, I was part of, co-founder of the One Voice movement that was still trying to do work cross-border. Uh, but again, we're going back through the same cycle that Palestinians that get engaged in this, they get very quickly delegitimized. Uh, because the, the discussion there is mostly focusing on political resolution before social resolution. Get the political stuff out, the diplomatic stuff out, the, the conflict needs to be resolved on the two-state level before we legitimize normalization, and it's seen as normalization. When you come and you bring the same concept inside Israel, 
we don't have that kind of obstacle that says this first and then we deal with other matters. Uh, the, the idea of the islands of success, if you bring it cross-border, it becomes much more difficult for uh, the Palestinians, specifically the Palestinians in the West Bank, to accept it. Uh, and that's why the only place I think we can focus on is on leadership training of individuals. Uh, not mass-scale projects, but leadership, scaling, uh, leadership training of specific individuals that can develop the capacity to be leaders in this field in the future, uh, such as training people in nonviolence in the Palestinian community. I think the Palestinians should have a massive revolution against Israeli occupation, but for it to succeed, it has to be nonviolent revolution. Because at the end of the day, their target is to convince Israelis that they should get out of the West Bank and Gaza. And to do that, you need to do it by talking to Israelis and not by harming Israelis. And that the, the, the Palestinian upcoming or should coming revolution should be a nonviolent way that does not threaten Israelis, but gives them a way to feel that it's about Palestinian independence and dignity, not about defeating Israelis. Uh, now, what should the North American organizations do? Uh, a lot. First of all, uh, and once again, I want to thank the JCRC for putting this on the agenda. Uh, the same has been done, for example, by APAC recently in the last two, three years. A uh, few organizations are beginning to realize that you cannot cover the sun. You know, you need to expose reality, show the problem, but also focus on the solutions, not just to identify the problem. It's easy to identify the problem. The question is, can you are you able to identify the solutions? So to give exposure to this kind of work, I'm sure that many people have invented the wheel before us. So who did invent the wheel and what way I spent eight months last year in Europe to look for the wheels, <laughs> you know, to look who did what, you know, we're not the first ethnic minority in an ethnic state uh, that has cross-border issues, uh, what's called kin state, you know, the, the, there are minorities that have kin states that, uh, and they found resolutions. Uh, in some cases, I found that we know more than what the Europeans do, and they offered me to be uh, to work with the Council of Europe on that. There's something called the Con Framework Convention for the Protection of National Minorities, which is a very developed model of how it works or how it should work. It's something that we should learn from and bring it to Israel. Civil rights movement in America. You know, you've got the affirmative action program. I'm learning about its successes and about its failures also. Uh, I, I want to bring the successes and copy them, and I want to avoid the failures uh, because sometimes failures could become uh, an obstacle uh, afterwards. Uh, who do you choose to support? There's a lot of money that comes from the U.S. Uh, to Israel. Some of that money goes to settlements. Some of that money goes to uh, establishment organizations, you know, plant one more tree with the JNF. Uh, some of that money goes to uh, uh, just opposition for the sake of opposition. Uh, I think you, you labeled what I said the pragmatic and practical. Invest your money in pragmatic and practical places where you get results, uh, where you see all of the uh, shareholders and you contribute to the solution, not to the problem. Uh, sometimes if you pick sides, you actually end up contributing to the problem. 
Uh, and I think that what we need is people that recognize reality, the reality of Israel and try to support its integrative future and not its segregative future. And uh, that means how, what you write in, in, in your newspaper, what you write to your congressman uh, or congresswoman, uh, who do you choose to visit when you come to Israel, and that's why I say when J the JCRC comes to visit, it gives legitimacy for this kind of work, who you choose to give uh, donations for on, on your holiday, uh, and uh, who you choose to uh, focus on in your prayers. Sometimes enough to have a prayer. Uh, I'm Kimberly, and thank you very much. And I, ha I have two questions also, which may or may not be related to each other. But the first one is I'm wondering if you or any of the people who work with you in your campus ever feel that you have additional risks or fears of personal safety because of the work you do, um, other than what you would experience otherwise. And my second question has to do with, you mentioned that in your the very beginning of your work, you um, looked, you were looking at busing, and I'm thinking you maybe were thinking of here in this country, and those metrics you gave about the reduction, after two years, the reduction in racism. I just wonder if you've given any thought to the replicability of what you're doing in completely different kinds of situations that are racist, and I'm specifically thinking of right here. And, um, or is it so specific to the history and the um, segregation and the, the political and rights situation that, that you have there. So I'm just wondering if, okay. if, if you've given any thought to that. I mean, regarding personal risks, uh, you know, almost everything you do in, in the Middle East is a personal risk. Uh, yes, I mean, sometimes there are, there are risks, there are issues, there are difficulties, there are arguments, there are threats. Uh, you learn to live with them. Uh, and you learn to also uh, stand uh, in front of them. You know, when I, in, in 2008, uh, I had a big debate with a few friends, uh, and some of them were less friends, about uh, that there's no one else in my community that supports what I stand for. And it's a community of 14,000 people. And uh, that was uh, about four weeks before the municipal elections. I said, you know what? I'm going to run for a municipal seat. Just for the sake of testing myself. Testing who, where do I stand in my community? Do I, do I have bases or not? Are there 20 people that support what I stand for or not? Uh, out of uh, 14,000 uh, residents, we had uh, 6,500 6, that had voting rights. Uh, and within, within you know, a short campaign of four weeks, ended up getting two seats out of 11 in our municipal council. That was about 890 votes that we received. And uh, lasted for five years. Then I said, you know, the municipal arena is not my arena. It was just ma mainly I was trying to make a point, but I did volunteer and, uh, and, I, and, and I was able to, oh, I wanted to prove then that my pragmatic approach gets the community somewhere. So we did not have a zoning plan, which meant that about 400 homes were 
uh, threatened to be demolished because they were built illegally, meaning that you know, although you build it on your own property, but you didn't get the permit, and there was no way to get a permit because there's no zoning plan. Uh, so I put it, my key goal was to get a zoning plan, uh, which means that you engage with the central government, the central planning authorities. Almost 80% of Arab towns did not have zoning plans. And I wanted to examine, does my pragmatism on the educational field work when I bring practical projects that relate to my community? It took about three and a half years, but we did get a zoning plan that meant expanding the zone of the town to doubling its size, which gives us solutions, housing solutions for the next 30 years. The second thing I wanted was deal with uh, public transportation. Uh, and we had one bus line that came six times connecting the center of our town with the center of the city of Nazareth. And I approached it from the economic point of view. We had very high unemployment rate and Nazareth had very high unemployment rate. So it's connecting one unemployment center with another unemployment center. Uh, so I started, the, I approached the Ministry of uh, Transportation and I said, we need bus lines that connect us with employment centers, not with unemployment centers. Where is employment? It's in Jewish towns. So we were able to get three additional bus lines to three Jewish neighboring towns and uh, expanding the frequency and having the bus lines not come just for one stop in the heart of the town, but do a, a circle line to collect people from outside which basically resolves the problem of many people in the, in the lower economic uh, uh, capacity of owning a car or so on. But the goal was really to see if the community is willing to accept and want this concept of pragmatic approach in dealing with issues. I was, I was still being asked to run for a mayor, which is something I think is too small. Uh, to be a mayor of a town of 14,000 people. I mean, I love my community. Uh, I adore my community. Uh, but maybe it'll be my last job, you know, before pension or after pension. Uh, but th that I think that the risk comes from very uh, marginal groups, not from the mainstream. That's that the mainstream in my community wants me to run to be mayor. And uh, the, the risks and the, are not from the mainstream. There are few marginal groups, either some that are motivated by uh, nationalist ideology or separatist national ideology or by religious fundamentalism. And, uh, you know, if you face them, you, you can put them in their place also. I think that what we, our, our case and our argument is strong enough we can make a case, and we need to have the courage to say it, and not uh, be neither afraid and not apologetic. I know today that I solved the housing problem of my town for the next 30 years. Let me get me one more person out of there from those critics that can say that. I delivered, they don't. Now, regarding replicability, when I was in Germany, I was offered a job at the Ministry of Integration. And I said, no, thank you, I have my hands full. <laughs> and uh, from here, I'm leaving in a couple of days, I'm going to, uh, I'm speaking at the Peace Education Conference in Bogota, uh, Colombia, the first peace education uh, conference. 
hosted by the Minister of Education. And which, you know, two examples that tells you, yes, it's replicable. The, 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 the know-how, the knowledge that we're developing in Israel, uh, yes, it, maybe it's not full and complete, but I also couldn't find full and complete models outside. So it's not things that we can only export, but things that we can engage and do joint learning of how things can and should be done. I know that there are things that uh, we are excelling in, uh, such as this fast track growth that we've done in, in the academia, a fast growth rate in women employment. In uh, 2005, I initiated a project that uh, focuses on integrating more Arab women into the labor market. At the time, the percentage of Arab women in the labor market was 17% of Arab women only that worked. Today, it's 36%. In practical numbers, it's 40,000 new Arab women that entered the labor market. That's 40,000 homes that now have second income. That means we have about 200,000 people affected by second income. That means about 17% of our population went from below the poverty line to above the poverty line. That's practical delivery. And uh, I think the power of what we're doing today is that we're measuring what we're doing. And when you measure something, you can model it. You can model it and then you can, it can be replicable uh, to other areas. Hi, my name is Michelle, and it's been such a delight and a pleasure to listen to you. Um, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. And congratulations to your daughter. Thank you. I love hearing that story. Um, I'm intrigued by so much of what you said, and wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your vision for um, islands of success in a horizontal approach when you're talking about um, Jewish national identity versus de democracy, um, Israeli identity. Um, also, you mentioned that this would be kind of contingent upon resolving the issue of the two-state solution. I wonder if you could touch on that and also one-state solution. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, two years ago, May, May two years ago, May 2015, we held a conference uh, at Givat Haviva, the uh, third annual conference on shared society. Uh, we're holding the next one on the 7th of May, so if you're planning any trips, 7th of May, we have the next conference. And the, the point was a shared vision for shared society. And basically the idea was, can, is there a shared vision? Is there a shared vision? Until now, by the way, I didn't talk about the shared vision. And I'll soon tell you why. There were three efforts to try to create a shared vision. One by in 1999 till 2001 by the Israel Democracy Institute and they formed a, a fantastic vision, group of really very smart intellectuals. And when they wanted to sign that document, by the way, it's documented in a book by a, a journalist called Uzi Benzeman, and the name, of the, book was, uh, the name of the book is Whose Land Is It? And when they came to sign the document that they created, in the ceremony, they simply refused to sign it. I said, okay, it's out there, but no one was willing to put their name behind it. Mainly because it was during the time of the Intifada, the Palestinian uprising. That's the, the, that's a regional context. You know, 
Do we accept the Jewish nature? Is it contrary to the democratic nature? What's the right symbiosis and combination? How do they melt with each other or they one triumphs over the, is it hierarchic relationship or is it symbiosis relationship, symbiotic relationship? Excuse my English. And the second effort was done by the New Israel Fund uh, after 2006. There was something called the uh, Future Vision Documents, uh, four policy papers created by four Arab uh, think tanks uh, of how do they see the future of the state of Israel. And pretty much all of them eliminated the Jewish nature of Israel. Parallel to that, there, were, uh, there was a discussion about uh, Israel's uh, constitution, and there are about four Jewish think tanks that create, were creating drafts for a constitution that did not see any role for the Arab citizens. Uh, and the, and the four, four plus four, the eight vision documents, whether it's under the name of constitution or under the name of future vision, neither saw the other as significant uh, at all. And all of them failed. Uh, so in 2013 till 2015, uh, Tufts University hosted a group of uh, 14 people, seven Arabs, seven Jews, and they did draft a document called Shared Vision for Shared Society. So I brought that document to our uh, conference. I wanted to give it some, to test what's the uh, response of the public for it. One of the key respondents was President uh, Rivlin, Israel's current president. And he said, this is the most important matter on Israel's national agenda. And failing to deal with it properly, and he was directing his uh, criticism to the government, failing to deal with this and neglecting it is uh, was the right word. Basically, borders criminal negligence. It's very harsh. And by the way, today I would say he is the guru for us in Israel. He really has become the lead spokesperson for shared society in Israel, which is very lucky for us, you know, to have the president that comes from the right wing, from right wing background. With the presidential status, it's you know it's not like the U.S. president where you have executive power; it's more symbolic uh, power. Uh, but he's become really the the, the host, uh, spiritual leader for for this work. But then I had two additional speakers. One is Ayman Odi, the head of the Joint Arab List, and the other one is uh, uh, the head of Meretz uh, political party. Meretz is the, is the left-wing political party. And she said, I cannot sign this agreement, this document. It's too much to the right. I'm sorry, it's too much to the left for me. And Ayman Odi, the head of the Arab party, came and said, I can't sign this agreement. It's too much to the right. It's too Jewish. She said it's too Arab. He said it's too Jewish. Pretty much. When you have the closest two political figures in ideology, ideologically. Ayman Odi, who is the moderate Arab leader, and Zahava Galon, she's the, even the most left-wing Jewish leader. They say, we can't find a joint vision. 
Where, where did this leave us? I was frustrated. I was very frustrated, you know. One, you have the intellect of Tufts University. Second, you had 14 wonderful leaders that, from civil society. And then, reality check was, forget it. Uh, I studied the, uh, the work that was done in South Tyrol for the German speaking, the Austrians the, the, that live in South Tyrol. I studied their experience, and uh, there they went through almost 40 years of negotiations regarding their status as Austrians that live in uh, Italy. They came, they came out with something called the package, uh, uh, something called the package, which is a list of 137 uh, regulations that uh, organize their status in Italy which provides them protection of their identity, national identity, 137 different uh, clauses that arrange that matter. They didn't speak at all about a vision, about identity, about flag, about, you know, and that's what the shared visions. They spoke about neutralizing the state into making it almost a shared space for everyone, but neutral shared space, more than, more like the French model of the republic for everyone, that everyone can become French, and very much like the American model, that you disregard identities and everyone sort of melts in, which is a model that's not working in Israel. By the way, it's a model that does not work also in Europe. The concept of nation states means that the state belongs to a certain nation, and then the question is what do you do with the non-nation members? So they created this concept of national minorities. We're not there yet in Israel. We're not there yet because still, as I said, the regional context is not resolved. Europe was able to deal with this after they resolved the border issues. We can deal with this after we resolve the border issues in Israel. So we, we, I went and thought, looked at that and I asked myself, can we create the 137 recommendations for us? What are our own 137 recommendations? And if you, if you look at the reality, so there is this project to integrate more Arab students in universities. That's one island. This project to integrate more Arab women into the labor market, to improve the high, to challenge the high tech industry and try to grow it from 3% to 20%. Uh, this fantastic success in the medical industry and wonderful projects of encounters between Jewish and Arab youth, this teacher exchange. You know, you can count six mixed schools. You can count already 20, 30 models that can slowly expand. And asked, what are the remaining 100? And some of those 100 could become other NGOs working or government policies. And by the way, as someone that has been working in civil society for many years, and I did also a little bit of work with government, I would say that the biggest social change agent is the government. And the question for us is how do we get the government pregnant with the right genes? How do we make projects policy? How do we export responsibility for implementation from us as NGOs to the government? You know, I think that the project of the teacher exchange would not have succeeded if we were not able to get the government to pay for the teacher's salaries. It would have still be a small boutique project. 
because the amount of money I can raise from donors is the same amount I can raise every year. $2 million, if you would all join my board, you'll probably bring another $2 million. So instead of being able to support 50 teachers, we'll probably be able to do 100 teachers. But the government can do 6,000. So one of the things that we learned was how do you really bring it to that level? So the, 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 what came out of this is a large-scale project, which is called the Roadmap for Shared Society. Uh, we convened a group of 70 uh, specialists, half Arab, half Jewish. They worked on five uh, uh, topics. Land, which is a critical conflictual issue. Uh, economy, education, governance, and culture. They created each one of them about 14 to 15 recommendations, either policy or project oriented. And uh, the idea was to, this, this pretty much drafts the pie, the, what's the whole pie for equal integration of Arab citizens in Israel, short of vision. Basically, what is the 90% of the road that does not require politicians? Because that 10% is the vertical approach. The 90% we can create as islands. And that's what we actually did. We finished the work in February. But we thought that before we present it to government and before we finalize it, we want to give it a little bit of uh, testing. Uh, we just completed 40 town hall meetings in 20 Arab towns and 20 Jewish towns to solicit public responses. We got about 2,000 people engaged in this process. And then we partnered with two websites, major websites, one in Hebrew called Ynet, which belongs to the biggest newspaper, Yidot Achronot. The other belongs to an Arab newspaper called Bukra. And we were able to solicit more than 110,000 respondents that evaluated those recommendations on two scales. We talked about this earlier. One scale was, what are the most important recommendations? And the other scale is, what are the most feasible recommendations? And there's a big difference between important and feasible. Because feasible means we can bring them to advocacy. We can try to bring them to government and say, this is feasible. Do it. Like, we're now working with 630 schools. We can work with 6,000 because we have the success model behind us. We have the evaluation behind us. And all what the government needs to do is scale it. That's feasible, and it's all about budget discussion. It's not about program design, the evaluation. We did the evaluation through an agency called RAMA, uh, which is Rishut Medidava Aracha, the authority for evaluation and measurement in the Ministry of Education itself, so that they do not question who did the evaluation. You go to the, to the, to the agency that is most credible in the eyes of your delivery mechanism, which is our, the Ministry of Education. Let them measure it, instead of us bringing in Harvard or uh, Tufts or whatever kind of wonderful uh, intellects, intellectuals to, to measure it. We had them evaluate it and measure it, and they gave the cautious stamping for, for this kind of program. Uh, but other things that are maybe very important but not feasible can, be become, project, can become projects for NGOs. 
But in this case, what we're trying to do is to organize the NGO world that we all work on a joint plan. That we, we put together a pie that when you take one project, you know where it fits with the other, which f tries to force the NGOs to start work in some kind of coordination and not competing. Yes, we compete for the money, but we need to coordinate on the project level. You know, should all of us work on elementary school level or should we divide those work in elementary school, others work in high school? But then what is the link between the pedagogic content that we provide in this age versus another organization that provides a pedagogic content? You need to have continuity, not complete separation. And that's you know, trying to put some kind of order into the, we have 24 organizations that are part of, of this team that is working now on, uh, on this roadmap for shared society. Uh, does it of that is, is there a guarantee that we'll succeed? No. Uh, there's no guarantee this will work. You know, we know that we will have roadmap, we will have strategy, and this will be probably the first time we can say we have it. Uh, we're regathering the 70 specialists on the 8th of, uh, of November. If you want to join us, you're welcome. Uh, to show them what the public said. We're asking them to re-evaluate their recommendations based on the 110,000 entries that we received from the public. Uh, and, and towards mid-December, we're uh, handing it to the president uh, in his residence, and he's going to also inviting some government officials, trying to give his support uh, behind uh, this kind of work. It's not a matter of vision. I don't have a vision for shared society. I have a road for shared society. And it's not, uh, it, it, there's no guarantees for success uh, in strategy. What you can do is accumulate successes bit by bit, so, you know, one piece after another. I think that our success is in being able to have 300 kids every week on our campus. We celebrate that every week. Does that change the capital P picture politics? No. No. It's not my job to do that. My job is to deliver the 300 that week. My job is to draft this roadmap. My job is to say this is what I can do and this is what you maybe want to do and try to have some kind of coordination. We're not priests, we're not prophets. We are simple people that are trying to do the right work. And uh, it connects together. Yes, it does connect together. We were able to create a revolution in the educational academic arena in Israel. It's a revolution. And there's a secondary revolution that is attached to that. 62% 60, 60, yeah, of our student population at universities, the Arab student population at universities, are female Arab students. 62%. So out of this employment and Jewish Arab stuff, we created the revolution of the status of Arab women. It's happening. Those are women that are wanting to, that will want to go to work afterwards. They're going to, they're changing the, the social makeup of Arab society. Uh, they're increasing the divorce rate in the Arab community, which is completely something new we're going into. Divorce rate of mar within marriages in the last decade is 25%. 
divorce rate 20 years ago was 5%. But this is part of modernization. You get, they, they get them, you get, they, they go to university, they get jobs, they create independence, and they get divorced. 25% uh, of them, not, not everyone. And it's not a must, divorce is not a must. Uh, but that's part of the side effects that you accumulate uh, along the way. Uh, ultimately, I think this methodology or, or this approach of creating of islands of success, this is how most cultures worked. This is how change happens. Now, the question is, do you have strategy or do you just let it happen? Until now, we just let it happen. And today, we're trying to have strategy behind it. And that's how we try to move from projects into a movement. The work for shared society is to move to become a movement. It's exactly what happened to the civil rights movement in the 60s. It's, you move from individuals, individual successes here and there, to create a mass that have a vested interest in making that change. Who is that mass? It's that company that hired my daughter. Once they see her quality, once they, she brings in two, three other friends of her, that changes the culture of that company. You change the culture of another company, another company. That's how I accumulate success. It's not a revolution. It's a very slow revolution, but it is a revolution. It's slow, but it's a revolution. But the good thing about it, it's nonviolent. You accumulate successes every single day. There's little damage done, because sometimes revolutions, if they get, have a violent nature, they can also create damage, and it can take you many years to correct that damage if you widen the rift in society. In, in order to create a change. Uh, but if you go to uh, Herzliya today, a Jewish snobby town, and you do find Arab families sitting in Aroma Cafe there, and the Jewish residents of Herzliya are not just tolerating them, but sometimes even smiling to them because they think that's their doctor. It happens to be not a doctor, <laughs> but they assume that it's the Arab elite that is coming to their turf, to their society, to their community. But all what it is, it's someone that has money that wanted to spend it. But that's how you create change. It's slow, but it's sure. We I, I, you know, I'm not sure how slow it is. You know, we were 3.5% of the student population only 14 years ago, and we're 17.5% today. It's fast. It's really fast. But it's not over the five-day revolution. It took us 14 years to get there. And probably in 14 years later, we will surplus our proportion in society. We're already doing it in, 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 in certain topics, in important topics, such as in high-tech, we are higher in, in the student population, not yet in the industry, but in the student population. But we are roaring. <laughs> as a revolution in high-tech. It's a, it's, a, it's a coming revolution. It's out there. So, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank... I'm sorry, we were... Yeah. I'll promise a short answer. Okay. No, it's just a comment about... Uh, I thank you for this. Uh, 
I'll take you home, you know. <laughs> you know, this is, you, you asked what, what do we do with in, in America? This, you know, this is the discussion we'd like to have. I mean, I want to learn from what you've gone through, what you've, what you've seen, what you've experienced. We don't have a perfect model. Uh, we're learning the way our, you know, ourselves. Uh, we don't have always the fantastic answers for every question. Uh, but we know that uh, most Arab doctors come back and live in Arab towns and villages. And uh, they are uh, challenging the Arab educational system to become more super achieving. And they are trying to encourage them to be engaged. You know, part, in part of our work, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we work on two, two areas, two skills. One is the cross-communal program, Jewish-Arab activities. And the other programs are empowerment. You know, equality is not just a term, but empowerment programs. How do you empower Arab women to start attending to their own community? I mean, who, who can you empower uh, to take political leadership or social leadership? Here is a failure island, not a success island, but a failure island. We are six, Arab women are 62% of the student population. But out of the municipal council members in all of the Arab towns and villages, there are 600 council members in all of the Arab towns and villages. There are only 11 women. So if you want to have modernization, there should be not 11, not 300, but most likely 400 Arab women in municipal leadership. Because municipal leadership breeds afterwards political leadership, moral leadership, economic leadership, modernization in, in, in the areas where we need to be in. So some, you know, we are identifying not just the successes, but also the obstacles that we're having right now. A, I, you know, your, your point was not a question. It was more of a comment that I think is a directive for, for me and, and my friends and colleagues. Uh, to focus on issues that we are not maybe conscious and aware of. Uh, but we are always looking for these directives. We're always trying to find where, what else can we do and how can we do it better? And what should we be afraid of? You know, uh, there is a phenomena today that you, know, you go to the city of Nazareth. Next to the city of Nazareth, there is a Jewish town built, just one road separating them, called Nazareth Elite, Natsrat Elite. And Nazareth, the, the, the Arab city, was going through uh, very harsh limitations on uh, uh, zoning plans and possibility to get permit to build a home. And mostly people that went to university and have a regular job that can qualify uh, to get a loan from a bank, they went to buy homes in the Jewish near, nearby Jewish town. So how do we relate to that as brain drain that we're losing the, the, the highly qualified people that are leaving the Arab town and going to the Jewish town. Or the Jewish town was receiving it, looking at it as a, a, an attack. They're coming and changing the identity of the Jewish town. Or do you see it as an evolution for that something new that's happening? And there is something new. This Jewish town today has 30% Arab residents. 30%. And now they're facing a question, should street signs be also in Arabic? 
Should they have an Arab kindergarten? Should they have an Arab elementary school? Almost half of that Arab population is Christian. Should they have a church in a Jewish town, a mosque in a Jewish town? How should Arabs celebrate Israel's Independence Day in that Jewish town when they think of it as Nakba, as a disaster for the Palestinian people? So yes, we are evolving in something else. The future Israel 100 years down the road is not going to be the current Israel. By the way, the future America 100 years down the road is not going to be the same America. Uh, so we shouldn't be afraid of change. I think what ultimately is going to develop inside Israel is something beyond the current Israel, something which is more inclusive, something which is more accepting, something which is more legitimate. I think what the, the national identity of the state will ultimately become Israeli national identity and not just a Jewish national identity. Today, it behaves as Jewish national identity. And I think Israeli means that it's Jewish and its Arab citizens at the same time. This is happening, it will continue to happen, not only in Israel, but everywhere else in the, in the world. Do we channel it in the right direction, or do we channel it in the wrong direction? And I think our job has to be channeling it in the right direction, and make it a faster process, which can be celebrated instead of uh, being painful process. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have a couple of brochures here if you're interested. Yes, thank you again, Mohammed, and thank you everyone for joining us, and thank you to Harvard Divinity School for hosting us, and in particular, Reverend Dudley Rose. Um, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mohammed. Mm -hmm.